Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches vacation.com. Welcome to the Confident Retirement Podcast. Is doing the most important things alone a good idea? How comfy are you with your choices when it comes to life's biggest decisions? What is real peace of mind with financial confidence and how can you get it? Chris Fleming and Mark Peachy are the founders of LPF Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors. I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host, Chris Flaming, and today I have the distinction of bringing Jamie Hargrove to the show. His Hargrove firm based in Kentucky and Tennessee specializes in estate planning, business succession, asset protection, and preservation strategies. His practice accomplishes its vision by its commitment to integrity, innovation, excellence, and compassion, giving clients the best outcome possible. In addition to his legal credentials and accomplishments, Jamie is also a CPA, and has authored the book, The End of Lawyers, Thank Goodness, which is only part of the title, and he can probably elaborate on that later. So, Jamie, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you, Chris. Great to be with you. I wish I were in Sarasota with you. We're, I'm in <laughs> today, and as I mentioned, I'm, I'm opening up that Sarasota office next month, but it's, it's, I wish I'd opened it up a couple months ago. So. Yeah, that might be for selfish reasons. You've always got places to go, right? So exactly. are you a recovering CPA or are you still in good standing? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, the CPA bit, I never wanted to be a CPA and I never wanted to be a lawyer. And here I am a CPA lawyer, right? But the two did kind of go hand in hand. And so uh, I'm a numbers kind of guy. Of course, that's yeah. I did that route initially. So, so I still love to get a good spreadsheet, but uh <laughs> But I'm kind of a visual guy too, so I, right. I, I tend to go that right. So yeah. You yeah. can use right and left parts of your brain. I, I, I try. Okay. You have a pretty interesting history of how you came to be where you are now after being with a much larger firm about a decade ago, right? So I want you to take us through what led you to opening up your own shop. Yeah. So I guess about 10 years ago, I rolled out of, of heading up an estate and trust practice for about 160 person uh, law firm based in Louisville and Lexington, mm-hmm. in, uh, Kentucky. And then before that, I was with uh, a firm that's probably about 600. I was a partner with probably about 600 lawyers with them for several years, but I decided really back, go all the way back to 1990. I, I had been a tax lawyer for about five years by the time 1990 rolled around ended up starting a law practice with a guy that later became mayor of Lexington. That mm. We started a firm called Newberry Hardgrove and Rambicure, and it was just three of us. And I decided then that I wasn't going to be a tax lawyer anymore because the expectations for tax lawyers is that you know everything there is to know about tax <laughs> law, right? And I didn't. So right. 
I really liked estate planning, so I decided I'm going to just do estate planning. So mm-hmm. in 1990, that's what I decided. So really built the practice in the 1990s. I uh, started doing PowerPoint presentations about six years before PowerPoint was invented. So it was using what I called Harvard Graphics. I was getting lots of, of speaking engagements. And at the time, I thought it was because I was such a great speaker, but it was actually the technology I was bringing to these uh, luncheons and dinners and so forth. So, uh, But that's where we really built the practice. That was in Lexington. Then went in with Big Law, and they treated me well, loved it. But I am a bit of an entrepreneur, so 10 years mm out to create our own practice. We grew, uh, actually, Jim Newberry, who he lost his re-election for uh, mayor yeah. of Washington and, and rejoined me in the firm and uh, helped us. He gave us a year of hard labor, helped us expand into 23 states, about 30 state planning lawyers. We ended up doing a, building about a million dollars into some online cloud-based technology yeah. Turns out that and our business model got the uh, eye of the American Bar Association mm. they giving us uh, an award. They said in March of 2012 that we had the best mm. on delivery of legal services yeah. law firm of any discipline in the country. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of neat. And that's ultimately ended up spinning out a, a technology company, raising $13 million for it and yet keeping my focus in the law business in the estate planning world. So, I'm curious, you know, coming this far, if you could go back in time and tell, you know, the younger Jamie, give the younger Jamie some advice, right? What do you think you would be the main thing or the most important thing you would tell them? What do you wish you knew then when that you know now? Well, I think the main thing is to associate with good people. And, and okay. I've been blessed with associations with really smart people, but really good people, right? And in the firms that I've gone in, these big firms, I've been treated as well going out of the firms as I would be going into the firms. So I think that's probably number one is if you're going to do it your own, that's great. And, you know, there's good and bad and ugly to that. And there's good and bad and ugly to partnerships and associations with larger organizations. But if you're going to associate, just spend lots of time, or in my case, time and prayer about really determining who you want to associate with. And that's really, for me, I, I don't think I had any missteps on that, that people were, not only were they, they good partners, but they were partners that wanted to promote me and my practice, right? And so uh, it was a good mix. And a, and then I guess the other thing would be just marketing. You know, we, I love to market and that's kind of a, I guess it, I call it a sideline. Those people, yeah probably would say that maybe is that's my number one thing I like, but I do love to market and, uh, you know, unless people know that you're there and know what you do and exactly your podcast, uh, Chris is a, a good example of that it's, it's just getting the message out to letting people know what you do and helping to educate them so that, that you can be a resource for them. Yeah. If they don't know you exist and you're not out there, you might be the most compassionate, smartest person, but if they don't know you're right. around then they don't know you're there. So You said something earlier that kind of leads me to another question, you know, when you were talking about being in partnership with people and finding the right people. So what's an easy way to explain why a business succession plan is so important to the owners and future owners of a business? So kind of like, what is it? What does it accomplish? Well, and maybe I should start with why it doesn't exist. Uh, you know, it's, it is amazing to me that people who are successful in business have spent very little time 
really focused on what's going to happen if I don't show up on Monday, right? Yeah. They spend more time planning their cruise, their vacation. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so a lot of people kind of feel that they come in and they say, well, when you ask the question, I know you're asking the question as a part of your practice is yeah. what's going to happen with your business if you're disabled, if you're deceased, yeah. who's going to step up to the plate? And most people have not done that. And, and obviously, you know, if, if you had a, a retail store, if you got a donut shop, and you're the baker and the guy that's at the front desk, and you ask yourself, all right, if I don't show up on Monday, who's going to do that? that right. Simple question, right? Yeah. to bake, and somebody's got to work the front desk, and if right. you're there, who's going to do that? And so, it's a pretty simple question to ask, and it's amazing how many business owners just don't have a good grasp of that. So when they go through that process and they have a succession plan in place, what does it ultimately accomplish? What's, you know, kind of the goal of doing it? Well, certainly the goal of doing it is to have a succession of the business and continue the business because there are some cases where the succession plan is designed to, when I die, my wife or my husband is called the um, M&A firm. They're going to put mm. it on the market or, uh, and, and we're going to sell it. So that's, yep is the business model. Mm-hmm. That's not often the case. And yeah. so in the case, it is either a key person that they think mm-hmm. would want to have that happen with. A lot of times they'll have a buy-sell agreement. And yep. As you know, a buy-sell agreement is a piece of a succession plan, mm-hmm. the entire succession plan, right. one piece of that plan. So uh, the idea of making sure your employees are protected. So, you know, if this business doesn't continue, then that means you got a big business that's employing a lot of people. Uh, you're putting them at risk. So not yeah. only are you putting your family at risk, you're putting your, your employees who, uh, who have probably helped make you successful uh, now at risk by not having that plan in place. And along those same lines, I'm curious, you know, people hear about like asset protection and they hear about estate planning, right? And they might think, well, are those the same? Are they different? Are they similar? How do they fit into each other? So can you give us some context or maybe some clarity on that? Well, so for example, one of the things that I find almost every client has an interest in asset protection, sometimes it's not for themselves, but that asset protection for themselves many times creates some restrictions that certainly entrepreneurs and business owners want to consider, right? Uh, right. Go into it saying, I want to be asset protected. And then when they realize some of the barriers that you right. set up, uh, maybe that's not what I want after all. Mm-hmm. But all of my clients, if you ask them this question and you said, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Smith, if when you're gone and you're going to leave your estate to your son and your daughter, do you have any concerns at all about having that estate eventually end up in the hands of a son-in-law or a mm-hmm. daughter-in-law. Now, as you know, if, if you don't bring that up, they may never mention it. It's, yeah. it's a taboo. You don't want to talk bad about your, certainly your son-in-law and your daughter-in-law, but this is the answer I get in virtually every situation. And they usually, they look over at the door to make sure no one's coming through the door, right? <laughs> they look out the window to make sure no one's peeping in the window. Yeah make this statement. Now, sometimes they're lying, of course, but they'll many times make this statement. Chris, we love our daughter-in-law and our son-in-law. You know what the next word out of their mouth is? What? 
But yeah, right. We don't want our estate to go to our son-in-law and our yeah. daughter-in-law, right? Right. I mean, no one does is universal. And wouldn't I want to send my inheritance, certainly my business, down to that next generation in a trust vehicle that will protect that inheritance from the evil son-in-laws and the daughter-in-laws. And what's interesting, I did a a pre four prenuptial agreements for a lady once. Prenuptial agreement, that's that's an agreement, as you know, Chris, that you get when you, before you get married, that says, all right, what many times they say, what's mine's mine, what's yours, yeah. yours. you yeah. can say a lot of things. But I did four of these. Now, what's even more interesting is the first one I did, the lady was 72 years of age. <laughs> That's the first one. I did four yeah. for her. I think right. she was almost right. 90 by the time I did the fourth one. The point is the son-in-law and the daughter-in-law you have today may not be who's going to be married to your kids when they die, right? That's right. And if you have the world's greatest son-in-law and the world's greatest daughter-in-law, and it may not be divorce, it may be death, but if your kids outlive their spouses, they could remarry when Mm -hmm. they marry. Now that usually brings in kids and you particularly, not only do you not want your inheritance to go to your, you know, son-in-law or your daughter-in-law, you particularly don't want it to go to a late in life set of kids. Now, kids, there are two kinds. There are stepkids that, you know, I basically raised like my own because they were in my home from an early age. And, and those are different situations. But if I get remarried at 60 and those stepkids are 30s, yeah. 40s, oh, I really, I, I might love them, but I'm not going to, I really don't want my inheritance to go to them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the biggest places that we see from an asset protection standpoint. Okay. People really want to try to cover so I'm shifting gears a little bit. What do you really like right now about your business? Is it the expansion that's going on? Is it, you know, the associates that you have? What do you like best? So I guess what I like about it is, you know, I like helping people just like you mm-hmm. do. And if I can help five people instead of four people, then that's great. And if I can help 50 people instead of five people, that's mm-hmm. even Right. So I'm excited really on two fronts. I'm, I'm able with, with the national practice now to help a lot more people. But I think I'm more excited just by the fact that I'm, I'm again, it goes back to what I said earlier about associating with good people, right? Mm. And I've got such good partners that I've been blessed to be associated with in each of these offices across the country. Mm. I mean, the state planning lawyers, many, many times they have a CPA or, or a LLM in tax background. And many times they're bringing some additional expertise that I don't have. Okay. Got yep. one that in addition to being estate planning, he's got a very rich background in domestic relations. We don't want to do domestic relations and we don't do it, but we do prenuptial agreements, postnuptial agreements. Yep. Having someone like that on your team really is very nice. I got a new partner in Nashville. He's a CPA lawyer, but his a big part of his practice over the years has been focused in commercial and residential real estate. I mean, he's got that down, you know, he's, he's got it, right? Yeah. So another resource that, that as we, we have complex, you know, our practice, we do a lot of block and tackling. I mean, we're in Kentucky, so it, it's everybody yeah. in Kentucky. I know you're thinking everybody in Kentucky is mega wealthy, right? Because of Churchill Downs and the- Absolutely. Everyone owns- Kentucky yeah. and, you know, we play basketball, we must be all right. wealthy, right? Right. So- 
but as you know, that's not the case. And so, uh, so we do a lot of block and tackling in all of our offices. But uh, you know what we, we we our gift and our specialty is really dealing with the very high net worth, the very complex plans. And when you get into those, having additional partners that bring in those little expertises, mm-hmm. which used to when I was with the big firm. When you're with 160 yeah. lawyers, you can walk down the hall or go up a floor and, yeah. and expert in virtually any area you want. And that's kind of what I've now been able to create. I never really thought about I was going to have yeah. that opportunity and being in a narrow focused estate mm-hmm. tax bracket, yeah. but it's happened and it's been nice. And what I think about is the ability to collaborate and leverage other people and doing that through partnerships or whatever, then you don't necessarily have to have them in house and you can expand. Um, that's a big right. deal. I find that locally too, where you can collaborate with other professionals and leverage other people that have those expertise. You can still provide the services without having to go to in a certain direction of bringing them on board. So are there areas of your practice right now that you get the most enjoyment from? So that you you really like to dig into and that you get excited about. Well, clearly the the very complex estate plans, I yeah. love those, and and generally we've got a large staff of really uh, longstanding with my practice paralegals and in-house CPAs that are that are not lawyers that just do what we call plan implementation. I'm able to delegate a lot of things to those plans, but what I don't delegate is is all the front end, the architectural kind of planning. Yeah. And that's really what I love to do. So I mentioned spreadsheets. I'm still doing spreadsheets on right. because we customize those for each client because everybody's different. So I've mm-hmm. and I really found customized software that really just seemed to do it all. So and then I'm a, I'm a visual guy. So we then chart out and I, I end up doing a lot of that on my end again, just mm-hmm. so I can make sure that the architecture and the vision. Yeah plan is kind of mine. And then uh, then I've got a really good team of people that, that carry that out. So so that's one area. The other area, area and it's a new area for us, is uh, in the elder law. So uh, a couple of years ago, acquired a, an elder law practice, have a, a phenomenal elder law partner that Medicaid planning, end of life planning. It's an elder care uh, life. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have life care planners that actually deal with things like which facilities and monitoring your care of your loved ones and so forth. So, and what I've found is, uh, and having been in practice now for, I guess, coming up on 38 years, it's really fulfilling to have a lot of these old clients that go back into the late eighties and in the nineties and obviously now aging extent they're still living. And and a lot of them are wealthy, but even the wealthy need to address and want to address these kind of end of life Mm -hmm. care issues, and they so much appreciate having a solution, right? And, and I yeah. know just in your business, I know one of the fulfilling things is just to be able to help people and them appreciate that, right? So when you can do something for, for a client and it takes a burden off of them and says, you know, and they go out and, and thank you as they're going out the door for, I mean, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Yeah. They implicitly trust you. You've listened to them and you solved the puzzle right? That's the part you like is the puzzle, solving that puzzle, and then made it so they can understand it. And they've got the confidence that they're in a good place. So on the flip side of that, what do you think is the biggest misconception that the public or people have about your line of work or your industry? Like a a big misconception? Well, probably the biggest misconception would be the thought that you have to give up control and access assets to do a planning. So Mm -hmm. I got a new client 
just about a month ago. I've actually known this through our kids went through a Christian school in Lexington, Lexington Christian Academy. And, and I think uh, one of our kids started out in first grade and, and went all the way through together. So, uh, so we would see each other and knew each other, but really uh, that's about it. But this gentleman has done phenomenally well and doesn't have a will. I mean, wow. we're in the hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue yeah. and no will, right? Right. And if you ask him, because I ask him, why have you waited to this late in life and this successful to, yeah. to do estate planning? And he, his comment was, I didn't want to give up control. And until I met you and, and until you've explained how the planning can work, Mm-hmm. I knew I could do the planning and keep control. And so like so many things, they did, the status quo just becomes what's comfortable. Right. And then they're just good with that. And people want to change, but it's change is hard. Until someone shows them, yeah, you, you can do that, then they're just going to stick with what they know, which is not doing anything. <laughs> yeah. Right? So I'm curious, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to go into your past here. So can you think of a first memory or experience that you had with money. So this could have been as a kid. It could have been as an adolescent. It could have been in high school. So a, a first memory or an experience that you have uh, with money, either positive or negative. Probably first experience was selling uh, excess vegetables out of the, uh, on a little card table out by a very busy highway out. In the okay. I grew up in a very rural area, but we lived on a, a busy uh, highway that the county and that led to a 4-H project and most okay. are just 4-H projects right yeah. well, again because I'd already learned a little bit about money selling cucumbers and I like that and, and squash and tomatoes I actually turned my little uh, 4-H project into two acres instead of a row of strawberry two acres one was a you pick them and one was a uh, we picked them and because we were on a busy road again I had e-commerce right there <laughs> so that was kind of my first exposure and then going to college and then basically keeping track of every nickel that I spent because I was paying my way. I knew, I think tuition, everything my first semester of college was almost to the nickel to a thousand dollars. I can send your kids to a thousand dollars a semester of school now, right? Good luck trying to find one. Yeah. yeah. So those are really my first experience okay. of making money and then really budgeting to make yeah. sure that I've made that is going to last me and get me through those four years of college. You remember what was a cucumber back then? What were you selling cucumbers for? I think they were probably uh, a several for a nickel. All right. Okay. That sounds about I know right. The, I know the strawberries were 95 cents a quart if we picked them. And I think they were like 25 cents a quart if you picked them. So any experiences uh, personally or in business that kind of made you keenly aware of the positive or the negative impact of wealth, right? Because money isn't really a positive or negative thing, right? And so the choices people make and how they view it can have a positive or a negative impact. So any, any experiences you can think of along those lines? Yeah, I think my first experience was really, you know, every decision we make is a decision about an allocation of time. So in our businesses, again, as we make decisions, we're making a decision relative to, to a new allocation of time or that we're even freeing up time or we're causing more need for more time. That hit home very quickly when I was in law school 
And when I started law school, I also started a real estate empire. I'll call it a real estate. I had two fourplexes and the Japanese had come in to build uh, Toyota manufacturing in uh, Georgia, which is uh, now about 10,000 employees at Toyota plant there. And they had a lot of Japanese companies that had come in and uh, they were, uh, had executives. If you buy a new house, they would pay exorbitant prices for rent. Yeah. For a three to five year period. So I had about three of those. And so I'm really, really ready to make a killing on real estate. And of course, I'm in law school. I'm married. I got a couple kids. Or actually, I'm now out of law school and I married a couple kids at home. And my wife asked me this question. Actually, she makes this statement. Okay. Do you want me or do you want the real estate? Wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's aggressive. So, So today I own my house. That's the only piece of real estate I own. Thirty-seven years. So do you know which which one I took? (laughs) Yeah, good choice. Yeah, Yeah, good choice. Yeah. So I I do think it business and life is about a lot of decisions, and we can only squeeze so much into it. So we do have to decide what is our priorities, both with Mm -hmm. our world outside of work and uh, certainly in work and make sure there is that balance that gets really what we want to do. That stayed wisdom. I like that a lot. So what would you then say is probably your biggest life accomplishment then, either personally or professionally or both? Probably 37 years of marriage. Okay. That's uh, There's not a lot of those seems like anymore. And I do have four wonderful kids. As you and I talked earlier, Chris, uh, we we have something in common. We both have uh, gone to uh, another part of the world and adopt a little baby girl. We adopted Mm -hmm. a little China about 21 and a half years ago after having three sons. And certainly I did that because I wanted to make a difference in Mm. his life. Right. But she's made, as you would know, she's made in our lives and in a lot of other lives. So that's probably if there's been an accomplishment, it's just kind of getting these four kids up and on their feet. And they pretty much have done that on their own. But uh, we, I guess we played our, our small role in that. Provide some examples, some guidance, right? Being there for them. And so, having two of, those, two of those are actually, uh, my oldest son went to Washington Lee Law School. He's a, a co-founder with me in my yes, company. Yes, I saw that on your website. Yeah, so that's Alex. And uh, and that's fun to, to work with him some days. And <laughs> yeah. My youngest son is in the law business with me now and helping me with, uh, with the expansions and fun working with, uh, with family. I do have a succession plan. All right. I was going to ask that. You knew it was coming. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Yeah. So if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what do you think you would be doing instead? So did you have some career path when you were a kid? You thought you were going to do this or you really thought you'd be interested in that and then change gears? Is What do you think you'd be doing instead? Well, really what I'm doing is the businesses that I've got that are all tied in with the law business. That's really what I wanted to do when I got out of undergraduate school is I do do something in business and then I go to law school not wanting to be a lawyer. I wanted to do something in business. So so I've been fortunate to kind of to build a law practice and treat it as a business. But now that I've kind of been so fortunate to have just kind of some really good opportunities, kind of all of that's coming together. Mm -hmm do that. I thought years ago, this is what I was going to do my entire life. And I've had some, uh, I had to wait mm-hmm. to do something that the, at the magnitude and the level I'm doing today. So that's really what I'm doing today. Yeah. Is visualize years ago that I would want to do, just thought I would have done it quicker. It's taken quicker. me a 
longer yeah. than Yeah, you had to get out of your own way. That's right. <laughs> and That's well, right. not a lot of people can say that, that they really are doing, you know, living the life they thought they would want to live or doing yeah. the thing that they really want to do. So outside of your practice, outside of running your business, is there something that you are really passionate about personally? Yeah, well, definitely my faith. Uh, mm. I'm a born-again Christian, so mm. while I certainly respect other faiths and certainly sure. both employ and I certainly have clients, I'm very passionate about uh, sharing my faith and, and plugged into uh, you know the local church, and, and that's a big part of our life. My wife is a gifted ladies leader, so she speaks at conferences and uh, spends, I don't know, hours a day at, in Bible study and memorization. And so yep. uh, she is, uh, you know, an inspiration to a lot of ladies and an inspiration to me. So uh, that's our kind of world outside yeah. the workplace is just uh, how we can help people through our faith journey. It's, it's hard to not be motivated when you have a spouse who not is pushing you along, but they are modeling, you know, being not busy for busy sake, but just mean, being mean, involved in meaningful things. So, right. okay, well, I appreciate you sharing that. So is there a unique or interesting fact about you, Jamie, that no one knows about, or maybe very few people know? Oh, well, I don't know that there is. I, I think I live in a fish tank. And so uh, I think <laughs> uh, most of what I am. And so uh, it's, uh, I'm just a, a flawed individual that been fortunate to be around some good people to help right. surround uh, yourself have, have a little success here and there good so is there a way that you know in your line of work everything things are always changing laws are changing they might change there's talk about this and that so how do you stay kind of on the cutting edge of your particular industry your specialties um, in your practice well, Chris, you know, one of the reasons that I did what I did back in 1990 to go from a tax lawyer period to a tax lawyer that's just doing estate planning is, yeah. is I wanted to be able to focus so that it was a little easier. It's still mm -hmm. not easy, but it's certainly a lot easier if all I've got to do is focus on this one narrow yeah. area. So, and there are a lot of resources, certainly in this area uh, that are available and, you know, good conferences, uh, the mm -hmm. Institute down in your fine state is something that uh, I generally get down to. So it's it, there's there's good resources, and again, the people that were around bring some good resources to help sharpen those tools too. And what do you consider to be the most exciting part of your business right now? I asked you earlier, kind of what areas of your practice do you like the best? But I'm from a business standpoint, what are you most excited about right now? What do you kind of see as the biggest opportunity for you? It clearly is the expansion. So okay. we're rapidly expanding. We've we've gotten an opportunity with country's largest uh, injury law firm, at, mm. and we are doing. Uh, we've got a couple hundred probate cases that have been handed to us in thirty-five states. So that's an area that we're building out technology and systems and processes, and but that's also pushing us into additional states that uh, we have not been in to this point. And yep. so we're using some technology. We're going to, we're going to with that, we're going to actually be uh, at the company I mentioned, NetLaw. It's a do-it-yourself platform. So we've, uh, it's a business to business to consumer platform. So if you think okay. of Zoom and Rocket Lawyer, uh, they tend to be a business to consumer, consumer, right. consumer platform. Ours, uh, we've sold tens of thousands of estate plans, uh, do-it-yourself estate plans in all 50 states, and yet you can't go on the, the netlaw.com website and get a will or a trust or any documents. We market strictly through financial services companies, 
And so they become then the individuals who give their clients a choice. Do you want to go to the Jamie Hargrove in your community and have mm-hmm. a plan done the traditional way with the, with the yellow pad and the pencil, right? Yeah. Or if you want to do it yourself and, you know, around 10 years away from millennials turning 50, millennials now make up over a third of our workforce and mm-hmm. millennials don't want to come see me, right? And so the idea of having an option, go see the Jamie Hargrove of your community, or if you want to go online, here's an option. We vetted it. It's da 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 And so that gives financial advisors, financial planners that option. Mm-hmm. And then and now we're come, now that the law firm has assumed to be a 50 state practice, it is going to be a, an add-on to the do-it-yourself platform. So if you a lawyer, either right on the front end or on the back end, you still get the efficiency of a do-it-yourself online platform, but yet still get the lawyer's review, sign-off, discussion. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's pretty exciting. And generally, the, all of the do-it-yourself estate planning platforms that are out there, they all use networks of attorneys. And we've used a network of attorneys. And, and unfortunately, that doesn't work so well. Hooking up lawyers and consumers is more than, takes more than just an Uber, right? It's not, yeah. you know, Uber works great because I need to go a place and I got yep. somebody got a car that's going to take me to a place I want to go from point A to point B. Lawyers, it's not really that case. And, and so what we've done is we have a services center model so that what we do is we get those clients into a service center model with paralegals and legal assistants to see what are their questions, how can we help them. Usually those folks, because they're customer service oriented to begin with, they can usually answer 70, 80% of the questions and yeah. immediately without having to go through the the timetable and the cost of the lawyer. And then we, after we're kind of left with what's left that needs to really go to the lawyer, then now we've got the lawyer focused on just the things that the lawyer can really help with now. Mm -hmm. And it cuts down the cost. And so we can deliver that service much more efficiently. It's all done on the net law platform. So it creates that opportunity for the, really what I think is a very different delivery of legal services. So mm-hmm. every since we're, we're kind of changing the way that yep. legal services are being delivered. And so that's a pretty exciting uh, opportunity. Well, and I think of it as the path to where the person is now and where they want to be isn't always a straight line. It isn't an Uber situation, but financial planning or estate planning, I mean, you have a lot of this, so we have to take a different route. And so you can have all that knowledge, but this part needs wisdom right? You need wisdom in there to get from there to there. You can't do that with a completely internet-based model where you don't have a human involved. So, and that kind of leads into, is that how you think, is that how you guys are addressing commoditization in your industry? Do you think is that, is that the best way that you're doing that or approaching that? It is. Yeah, that, that really is the the solution. And it's, again, it, it has to have that services component attached with the lawyer, because if you think about the real estate industry, when I got out of law school in 1983, a residential real estate closing lawyer did about 80% of that real estate closing. Well, there's actually only 13 states now that even require a lawyer to be yeah. at a closing. And so if you think about that real estate closing for, for any of your listeners who've, who've recently purchased a home, they probably didn't even talk to a lawyer. And if yeah. they did, they, they only talked to them after they all of their questions had been answered, right. everything been addressed by non-lawyers, right? Yeah. 
right. and, and they're happy. They nobody's when they go to a closing, no one's complaining. Man, I wish I'd had more time with the lawyer. No, they yeah. just answers to their questions, right? right? And so the problem in the legal industry is we think everybody wants to talk to a lawyer. No, yeah. they just want their legal questions answered. But what's interesting is most of their questions aren't legal questions, right? Yeah. Right. So what we're doing is we're parceling out and let's strip out the questions that really aren't legal questions. Let's let non-lawyers answer those and yeah. use and processes and technology and video and all the things that, that you're employing in your own practice to help address those. And then and when we need the lawyer, let's let the lawyer be engaged. Yeah. So I think it's a very different model and uh, pretty excited that we're able to kind of be, I think, on the uh, a bit on the cutting edge of yeah. that. Do you see anything as being a really big challenge right now in your business or an obstacle that you think your firm needs to overcome? Well, you know, the biggest obstacle in any business is capital, right? So one of the reasons we spun out NetLaw into a separate company 10, I guess, nine years or so ago uh, was you can't raise money very easily in a law firm. And so as we are expanding across the country, it made sense to have it as a non-lawyer company. So capital Mm -hmm. is always an an issue when you do rapid growth expansion for anybody. And, And certainly you're Listeners who are business owners, they understand that. If they're, if they're a seasoned business owner, entrepreneur, they understand it, that if you're going to grow, you better have some capital to be able to grow with. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be able to have access to that when you need it. So thinking back, is there a question that I should have asked you or would do you want to expand on anything that you said earlier or clarify that you can think of? Yeah, maybe a couple of things. One is if you ask me what is missing in the mm. law practice, I would say it is what you and your team is doing because what happens in the law business, we become a bit more transactional. Need a will, right? I need something and when I get it, then I'm kind of done that, right? I don't need that lawyer anymore because I did what it was that he said do. But really what they need is they need relationship. And lawyers, uh, one, we're not always very good at that. And two, the transactional nature of our industry and our business make it not really conducive to this kind of ongoing relationship, which is different in your business. And that's where we really rely upon that having a relationship with uh, someone like you, Chris, and your team, because you're, you know, not everybody's doing it the way you're doing it, certainly, but the way you're doing it, having that regular engagement with your clients, helping monitor, because what helps for us is to have someone like you and your team involved in the planning because we're not engaged on a regular basis. We're not yeah. there to kind of monitor or see that, oh, maybe we better go to Jamie and see what's going on. That's right. you're there to do. You learn the planning, you understand the planning from the mm-hmm. get-go. So now you can spot issues or areas. Oh, you're getting ready to acquire a business. Are you sure that's where Jamie said you you wanted to do that? We Maybe yeah. pull the troops together because a lot of clients they forget all about, you know, we tell them, we put it in a letter. If you buy a business, buy it over here. Right. And it, they come in years later and they bought it over here, right? So having you and your team at the front and center of that and creating that relationship where you can help spot those issues and pull them back in for that kind of that transactional piece is really, really important. Yeah. I found that with people just, they get the letter, they have everything in place. And then I follow up with them. Did you fund the trust? Like Jamie said, have you put stuff in it? Right? Oh, you have it. Okay, we need to do that. 
right? Because it doesn't make any sense to create the trust if you don't fund it, right? Or right. that changed, so now now we have to retitle that. Or remember, we used to do it this way, but now we're doing it this way because of your estate plan. Or this changed, so you need to go back and do an amendment. And I think that having a comprehensive team of professionals, that can be really effective so then things don't slip through the cracks. So if people wanted to learn more about you, about your firm, what do you think are the best ways to contact you? So our website is just Hargrove Firm, like a law firm, hargrovefirm.com. And uh, give some information about mm-hmm. the, we are and what we're doing. I don't think it's got all of our, our offices at this point and all of our attorneys are not on there. Like most people, if you ask, talk to most people, they say, yeah, our, our website's under construction, right? We, right, yeah, this page under construction. Process, we're kind of in that place too, but uh, but that's still going to be the best way to connect with us and find out what services we're doing. But uh, Okay, yeah. and spell Hargrove, is it H-A-R? H-A-R-G-R-O-V-E. Okay. I-R-M, like a law firm, dot yeah. com. All right, so Jamie, listen, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. You've been an insightful guest, and I've learned a lot in a really short time. Uh, It's really been a true pleasure to interview you, and I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Folks, we have been here with Jamie Hargrove, the founder of Hargrove Law, and I want to thank all of you for tuning in to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we're raising the retirement confidence of everyday people to another level, one show at a time. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris. You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.